When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Positive America. This is Tommy Vitor. You know me from the Monday episodes. You know me from Pod Save the World, the show you listen to after Keep It on Wednesdays. That comment was directed at my wife. Um, we are interviewing all of the uh, presidential candidates who are willing and able to come through our studio here at Crooked Media HQ in Los Angeles. Today, I was honored to talk with Julian Castro. He's the former mayor of San Antonio, the former secretary of housing and urban development, and a very, very nice guy. Um, Here's the stuff we talked about. Here's what you have in store for you. We talked about his big, bold uh, immigration policy and some of the political hurdles he may face in trying to pass it. We talked about why he went to Puerto Rico first when every other candidate goes to Iowa. Uh, We talked about some housing policy. We talked about whether he was willing to break some news with me by releasing his list of Supreme Court justices. Spoiler alert, he did not. Um, We also talked about why Democrats have struggled to make inroads with Latino voters, even in 2018. Uh, And then for him personally, how he thinks he can break through in a field uh, of 2020 primary candidates that gets bigger by the day. Um, then we turned to some foreign policy questions. I asked him about the rise of white nationalism and what the hell we can do to stop it. We talked about the U.S.-Saudi relationship and whether they are still an ally after all the terrible things they're doing. We talked about China uh, and the fact that they're locking up a entire religious minority group called the Uyghurs and, and how we push back and get them to stop. Uh, and I asked about Trump's diplomacy with North Korea. And then finally, I asked him about Beyonce. So without further ado, here is the interview with Julian Castro. Download, subscribe to Pod Save the World. I am honored to have with me in the studio today uh, the former mayor of San Antonio, the former secretary of housing and urban development, Julian Castro. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you. Um, so... It's been a weird week uh, in the Trump world, as I guess we could say that every week, basically. Right? <laughs> that is true. But I mean, yeah. he threatened to seal the border with Mexico. He threatened to, to cut off aid to uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. You rolled out a very, very different, far less punitive and cruel uh, immigration policy. You've proposed uh, decriminalizing illegal entry into the U.S. Uh, and making it a civil infraction. So more like a speeding ticket uh, than a crime. You want to split up ICE. Uh, you've proposed a Marshall Plan for Central America. Can you explain your immigration proposals and, you know, in, propos- in particular, what you can do on your own versus what Congress would have to act on? And, and talk about why you took such a bold approach. Uh, well, I just have a different vision for this from the president. Um, if you'll remember about a year ago, uh, his administration told us basically that if we would just be cruel enough to separate little children from their parents, that uh, that would deter more families from coming to the United States. And in fact, 
more families are coming now. Yeah. And so he wants us to believe that in order to have a secure border, we need to choose cruelty. Uh, I believe that we have a border that is more secure than it's ever been. And I'm asking Americans to choose compassion. So this people first immigration plan that I rolled out uh, includes uh, rolling back something called Section 1325 of mm -hmm. the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, which, as you know, uh, was put in place in the late 1920s. But until about 2004, these infractions, somebody crossing over the border, was actually treated mostly as a civil matter. It wasn't treated as a criminal matter. Um, I believe that we should go back to that, that it will help us undo the backlog that exists of people. Mm -hmm. um, folks have been watching these images of, folk, of people under the bridge in El Paso that are literally fenced in with razor wire. Um, this family detention yeah. practice of separating little children from their parents that's all part of this incarceration push in our immigration policy. I think that we need to do away with that. I also believe that we need to increase the number of refu refugees that this country takes in. I think that we need to stop playing games with people who are seeking asylum in this country, stop treating them like criminals and allow them to make their claim. Uh, I saw the president today suggest that we should somehow do away with asylum uh, and also do away with immigration judges. Actually, I believe that we should strengthen uh, our immigration judicial system and make it independent um, and invest in it so that we can actually process these claims. I mean, the fact of the matter is we know that many of the people who make an asylum, asylum claim in the United States may not get asylum, mm -hmm. right? Also, under my plan, of course, we maintain the power to deport people, um, but we don't treat them like criminals and we don't act like this is just going to go away. Uh, I also proposed basically a 21st century Marshall Plan for Latin America. Uh, I know that uh, you can't compare the, the, the Latin America of today with post-World War II Europe, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Europe was coming back after the war. But what I mean is that I believe that we need to make investments in these Northern Triangle countries, in Honduras, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, so that people can find safety and opportunity there instead of having to knock on the door of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so they win and we win. Um, I love that you are taking a big, bold approach on immigration policy. I think that Democrats need to go at Trump hard on immigration because if you look at the facts, he's a failure, right? He's failed on enforcement. He's failed uh, when it comes to living up to our values. He's, he's not done the job, gotten the job done. Um, but I also know, you know, just from mostly the time in the White House, that some of these policies are tough politically. Um, and uh, some of them you've proposed, like splitting up ICE, decriminalizing illegal entry, the, the foreign aid. Um, if those require congressional action and in, in some instances are unpo unpopular, um, how do you propose to, to sell that? I mean, how can we get voters to understand that more money for... Uh, for foreign aid is actually going to help them in the long run? Well, I mean, the fact is that, as you know, the United States um, every single year uh, invests in the relationships that we have around the world with aid to many countries. And so I do think that there's a backbone in our history of some built-in support, some realization of that. You're right. I mean, we do have to convince people why it would make sense. And I would very much lead that with an explanation of how much we're going to spend, how much it would cost to build that wall, 
versus to invest less, what would be less dollars in these Northern Triangle countries. And I think to stem the tide, stem the flow of people coming over here. So just on a numbers basis. Do you have a ballpark believe, number? You're uh, I don't, um, but you know, I anticipate that that would be our approach. Sure. Uh, and you know, during the course of the campaign, we look forward to getting specific sure. about that. Um, but the other thing is that uh, you know, I think that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House. And one of the lessons on immigration reform of 2009-2010 um, is don't wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to go for that. A lot of candidates announced that they're going to run for president, and then they catch the first plane to Iowa. You went to Puerto Rico. Why'd you do that? I went to Puerto Rico because... Um, I wanted them and all Americans to know that if I'm president, that everybody counts in this country. Uh, this administration has failed the people of Puerto Rico. Uh, just recently, he lied that uh, $91 billion had been invested in Puerto Rico to recover from Hurricane Maria. Mm-hmm. The truth is that that's just over $11 billion. And I wanted to, to just tell them, you know, we're thinking about them. They're Americans too. And uh, if I'm president... I think, frankly, if any of the folks that are running for president as Democrats make it, that we're going to treat them very differently. Mm-hmm. We're going to make sure that they count. Why, do you have a theory for why he is so vicious towards elected officials, uh, any financing going towards Puerto Rico? I mean, he's, it, it's, it's glaring. It's nasty. It's insecurity. Uh, he recognizes that uh, it's another example of the administration's either malice or incompetence. Mm-hmm. See, I don't think that his incompetence is given uh, enough credit uh, a lot of I times. Yeah. Um, it, it's an incompetent administration full of people who are C or D level appointees. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I mean, you served in the federal government. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of positions that are unfilled, a lot of decisions that don't get made because people are afraid to make a decision because there are gaps in the chain of command, um, political decisions that get made. So he wants people to believe that it was Puerto Rico's fault from the very beginning when they suggested that somehow you know people were on strike and so right. they didn't help deliver supplies on the island. Um, he, he riles up his base by making him think it's Puerto Rico's fault. Uh, when it wasn't, and uh, shifts the conversation to that mm-hmm. instead of the fact that that Harvard study pointed out that about 3,000 3, people died, and a lot of them after the storm hit because the recovery was not handled the right way. Yeah. Puerto Ricans are known to create uh, their own hurricanes, I think, is uh, yeah, yeah, his, his take yeah. on this. Um, do you think Puerto Rico should become a state? Well, I think that they should... Um, that they should determine that. Mm -hmm. I know that there have been a couple of votes in years past. Uh, I would like to see a process for self-determination. I would be committed to that if I'm president. Um, I think that uh, um, they should be respected first and foremost, and they've been completely disrespected by this president. I mean, I I cannot believe how disrespectful this president has been. Nor can I. So you were President Obama's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development from 2014 to 2017. Um, The the financial crisis and a lot of the fallout from it was before your time in in many instances. But there are some Democrats who believe that Obama didn't do enough to help homeowners uh, hurt by the financial crisis, but he bailed out banks, right? Something you hear a lot. So 
For example, they think we should have let bankruptcy judges modify homeowner mortgages uh, to reduce the terms, reduce the value of the debt, and avoid foreclosure. It's called a cram down, one of those awful terms that I will never forget, and no one knows what it means. Um, do you agree with that criticism? And if you do, do you? What other things do you think we could have done to help homeowners after the crisis? Well, what I believe is that President Obama uh, did a very good job with the circumstances. Uh, that he inherited um, you know, in terms of getting the country back up on its feet. You think about communities like Florida or Nevada that were very hard hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was night and day, you know, if you stepped in there in January of 2009 versus January of 2017. Um, at the same time, of course, there are things that, that you know, lessons learned Hopefully, we won't have to go through that again, but lessons learned in terms of maybe we can be more aggressive in, so that more people can keep their homes. But overall, I do think that the administration was focused on the concerns of everyday people, especially in a way that this president just is not. Yeah. Folks may remember, you know, right after he was elected, uh, that uh, you know somebody caught him, I think, on tape or a reporter that Trump told his buddies at one of the, his clubs, uh, you know, I'm going to get you that tax cut, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to yeah. lower your taxes. I mean, that's completely different from the the attitude that President Obama had uh, and all of us had, which is we want to do what we can to to improve the lives of everyday Americans that are working hard and have just lost their homes. I think in the future, um, we can look at more aggressive ways uh, to to make sure people can keep their homes, um, also to add to housing supply mm-hmm. that is affordable because we have a rental affordability crisis yeah. out there. Uh, and on the stump these days, I talk a lot about that. You know, One of the things I talk about is that we need to be the most prosperous nation in this 21st century, but it has to mean prosperity for everybody, from raising the minimum wage to investing in affordable housing uh, to making sure that, of course, we focus on the middle class, but also that we focus on the poor, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I mean, look, I've lived recently in D.C., <clears throat> L.A., San Francisco. I mean, these are cities where rents are just skyrocketing. And you really hit the hot spots of, yeah, uh, of it expensive was, uh, places. Not the smartest move on my part. I wasn't a tech founder. Um, so, I mean, like, these these cities, I mean, the gentrification, people are getting driven out of their homes. What role do you think the federal government can play in in helping people afford housing versus you know state and local governments? There are things that we can do. Um, You know, at the end of the Obama administration, one of the things we did was to release a set of um, recommendations for local communities on land use decisions Mm -hmm. that they could make um, basically to to increase the likelihood that affordable housing would be built, that we'd get greater supply. But we can make stronger investments. I would increase... Uh, the National Housing Trust Fund, increased low-income housing tax credits, also traditional tools like community development block grants and home funding, um, and money for to combat homelessness because we have, yeah. uh, in these cities that you mentioned, right, growing unsheltered homelessness. But we also, I think, have to uh, restore something called affirmatively furthering fair housing. It was a blockbuster rule that HUD Uh, did during the Obama administration to basically tell communities, look, if you're going to get federal taxpayer dollars through HUD, you have to get more serious about providing equal housing opportunity throughout your jurisdiction. Uh, And that, I think, will help uh, jurisdictions, cities or counties uh, be wiser, be more prudent about things like gentrification and displacement. 
I have to tell you that I traveled to 100 different communities in 39 states when I was HUD secretary, you know, over those two and a half years. And I would not have graded a single community with an A when Mm. it came to combating displacement. Because oftentimes what happens is by the time people recognize there's a problem here, you know, there's already gone through a tipping point and people can't afford to live there anymore. Uh, Austin is a great example of that. You know, the east side of Austin has lost half of its African-American population over the last decade or so. Um, So there is a lot of, there are investments, um, but there's also, I think, uh, uh, an approach that we can take to help local communities get better about that. Um, Switching gears a little bit, but I guess staying in San Francisco, uh, there's some polling out today about how unpopular some of the big tech companies are, like Facebook, Google, Twitter. Um, There's been a lot of talk recently about how they should be regulated or maybe even broken up. Do you think it makes sense to break up companies like Facebook or Google? And and if yes, I mean, do we need to update our antitrust laws to reflect the reality of business today versus, say, Standard Oil in the 20s? Oh, I think it's definitely worth taking a look at those laws. Um, you know, I believe that that's worth uh, a, a debate, a conversation. Uh, I have concerns about, for instance, um, companies that have gotten as big as they have with a business model of using consumer information, using the the web data, cell phone data, mm-hmm. you know, tracking data of ordinary Americans. Um, I do think I was in Iowa the other day. We did a, a forum in Storm Lake around rural issues. And one of the things I said there was with respect to agribusiness, for instance, that uh, I applaud efforts to not just look at consumer price when two companies are trying to merge in agribusiness, but also looking at the effect on small business along the chain of production. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, analogously that we can say that in the same way about tech or or other industries. So, yeah, I think that that's worth a debate. Um, During the campaign, uh, President Trump had some donors, lobbyists, the Federalist Society draw up for him uh, a list of potential Supreme Court justices uh, that he could then release to show his conservative bona fides. Do you have a list? And do you want to share any names with us today? <laughs> I don't have a list. Okay. Um, but let me tell you what I would do. Number one, we need to bring back respected organizations like the American Bar Association to give input and make recommendations and take those recommendations seriously. Secondly, um, I know the importance of the Supreme Court to fundamental rights like the right to choose, uh, and that the future of Roe v. Wade is under threat because of the direction that the court has been going in. And if I'm president, I'm going to make sure to appoint very well-qualified judges uh, who have a good track record and have embraced progressive values. I mean, so just this week, Mitch McConnell is is forcing through a rule change that, that reduces the amount of time you have to debate one of these judges and closure from 30 hours to two. So they are just ramming these you know, they're finding like anybody over the age of 13 who's maybe taking the LSAT and they're like getting the federal <laughs> yeah. judgeship. You're not, yeah, you're not kidding in some yeah. instances. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm yeah. not. I mean, can we fix this? Is, is, are they stacking the, the federal courts to such a degree that, that the next Democratic president might not be able to unwind this, the damage? Well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of damage, no doubt, um, because they're pointing ideologues, uh, because some of these ideologues, as you suggest, are hardly qualified. I mean, there were a couple, I think, that hadn't even um, argued a case, yeah. had not yeah. litigated a case, and now they're going to be Supreme Court justices that go into the intricacies, essentially, of the law. Um, 
So people have discussed different ways that we could look at it. There, there's one that I, I'm not too fond of and, you know, maybe a couple that I, I would consider. The one that I'm not too fond of is just simply increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Because if we go from nine justices to 11 tomorrow, what's to say that in a couple of years they don't come back and put it back at nine or sure. at 15? The ones that intrigue me more, for instance, are term limits. Yeah. Uh, on what are now lifetime appointments, if you had a 20-year term limit or something like that, um, or some system that's uh, you know akin to how some states do commission redistricting, right? The Democrats appoint certain people, the Republicans appoint some certain number of people, and then you have to agree mm-hmm. uh, on a certain number of people. So those tend to be more in the middle. You know, I'm, I think that that's worth looking at. You yeah. know. Yeah. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. In the in the 2018 midterms, um, Democrats obviously had a lot of success, and we made some progress among Latino voters, but I think it was a lot less than, than people had hoped, especially in places like Florida. Um, Similarly, I think you've seen general Latino political participation not keep pace with Latino population growth. Um, I'm curious if you have a theory of the case for why that is and and thoughts on how Democrats could do a better job of earning the votes uh, of Latinos in the U.S. Well, I mean, I think different reasons. Um, What can we do to improve that? Uh, It's going to take an all-out 
365-day-a-year effort to invest in registration and in turnout. As you know, I mean, campaigns are often focused on the most likely voters because they have limited resources. Right. So this is something that foundations and uh, you know C4s and others are going to have to do uh, year-round, not just three months before an election or six months before an election. But if you have a sustained effort to improve turnout, uh, registration and turnout, then I do think that you can start seeing those numbers improve. We did see, you know, from 2014 to 2018, uh, over 150% increase in Latino participation, uh, at least in Texas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is some reason for hope. I do think that in 2020, um, we're going to see an increase. You know, I believe also that you have to continue to recruit good candidates from the local level, the state level, and at the federal level. Um, you know, as a candidate, uh, I've always been mindful that you need to represent everybody when you're, if you're in office sure. and as you campaign. But I do believe that my candidacy as the only Latino that's running in this race is going to have um, special meaning to a lot of Latinos. And I believe that if I'm the Democratic nominee, that I can go get the 11 electoral votes of Arizona, the 29 electoral votes of Florida, and the 38 electoral votes of Texas. Yeah. Um, something you said reminded me of something that literally keeps me up at night, which is that, <laughs> you know, that? Trump is out there. He's going to raise a billion dollars. He's go, he's all, he's putting millions of dollars into Facebook ads to scare the shit out of old white people in various places like every day. Um, and Democrats, we are, are going to spend a couple hundred million dollars in Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, you know, maybe some Super Tuesday states. Does that worry you that we're not doing the structural investing that you, you talked about? Or do you think the DNC is, is filling that gap? Well, I mean, I'll give Tom Pettis some credit, right? I mean, yeah. I do think that he has given that thought. Um, in addition to addressing some of the 2016 issues of, right. you know, Bernie Hillary stuff. Yeah, divisions and feelings that were still there. Um, but I, I do think that they've taken a, you know, a, a eyes wide open approach now. But it's going to take you know, the Democracy Alliance and others that are interested in long-term growth in registration and turnout to make those investments, we can't take our eye off of that ball. I do agree that, look, the first order of business is to go get Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I mean, we lost those by collectively less than 80,000 votes. And I think that a couple of the trends we saw in 2018, like the suburbs going mm -hmm. over to Democrats and as you know, President Obama in 2012, uh, there was an African-American turnout rate of 66%, and that fell to 59.5% right. in 2016. I think that, that that's going to go up again, right? Whether I'm the nominee or there are others that can, I think, make that go up again. So there's a lot of promise there. But on top of that, the future is to go get Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Kirsten Cinema already won in Arizona. Gillum only lost by, in a midterm year, only lost by 33,000 votes. Bill Nelson, They were, they were. But, you know, I mean, a, a presidential year is going to be better than a midterm year probably for us. Um, but, you know, Bill Nelson only lost by 10,000. And in Texas, uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke got within two and a half points of Ted Cruz. So we, there's a lot to suggest that that's fruitful territory for us. Yeah, I mean, look, Beto's, Beto turned out a lot of voters. Um, but he was also running against like arguably the worst person on the planet. I mean, <laughs> yeah. do you think, do you think Texas is gettable in an election year? Because Demo we've been salivating over Texas for a decade. Democrats have. Oh, I do. You do? I do. Um, 
you know, a good example of that was that Hillary lost Texas by nine points, right? She lost Ohio and Iowa by nine points. But for Texas, it had gone from a 16-point difference to a nine-point difference. And now in the midterms, there were a couple of candidates, not only Congressman O'Rourke, but also um, the lieutenant gubernatorial candidate, I think Mm -hmm. Mike Collier, who were within three points. So for 2020, I believe with the right candidate that, yeah, we can get it. I believe that if I'm the nominee, uh, that I can get Texas. I like that. Um, So speaking of the nominee, so there's roughly a thousand Democrats running for president. (laughs) Um, I can't imagine how difficult, I mean, I remember running against Hillary and thinking it was hard to break through. I can't imagine how it is now, especially with there's thresholds one has to meet to be invited to the debates, right? And you, you warned supporters in a fundraising email that the party's new rules mean you might not make it onto the debate stage. So I guess my question is sort of what's your pitch to listeners to say, give me a buck so I can get on that stage? Uh, and, and how do you hope to break through? And then because I love 15 part questions, like is your path Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, or do you think you might prioritize your time differently? Yeah, well, um, you know, I announced on January 12th, and unlike some of the candidates, I had not run for president before, hadn't run for Senate, right. um, even though I've served as a federal executive, right, um, a, a national post. So we're building up our campaign from scratch. Um, our fundraising has accelerated tremendously. I'm still not at the 65,000 threshold, and so we're taking contributions to get on that debate stage. I have met the polling requirement, though. Um, and And why? Well, number one, I'm one of the few candidates in this race that has executive experience, having served as uh, a cabinet secretary, you know, managed an agency of $48 billion budget, 8,000 employees, 54 field offices across the country, also served as the mayor of San Antonio, the nation's seventh largest city. Uh, so I have a track record of getting things done. And uh, I represent a new generation of leadership, and I think that people are looking for a new generation of leadership. I've also... Uh, articulated a strong, positive, compelling vision for the future that that we be in the 21st century, the smartest, the healthiest, the fairest, and the most prosperous nation, and am releasing plans on how we get there, like we did with this People First Immigration Plan. So, I, yeah, I, I believe that with the support of the American people that I am going to get on the debate stage and uh, would encourage folks to give. Um, once we get on that debate stage, uh, I, I'm confident that I'm going to stand out. In terms of my path, uh, I think everybody's got to keep compete for Iowa because mm-hmm. in such a crowded field, yeah. uh, you know, if you get lost in the shuffle, if you don't do right. very well there, then right. it's probably hard to to stick around. So I'm going to compete in Iowa. Uh, I also uh, like that we have Nevada as the third state. Yeah. After those first four states, I actually really like the secondary stretch of states. On Super Tuesday, March 3rd, we have California. We have Texas. We have, I believe, Colorado, as well as the South. Puerto Rico, I understand, is looking at moving up its primary to Sunday, March 8th. Hmm. And then after that, within two weeks or so, you have Florida and Arizona. And so I feel good, very good about that secondary stretch of states. So let's fast forward a little bit. You won. Congrats. Uh, You walk into the Oval, put your feet up on the desk. What do you do on day one? Um, Well, uh, and that moment will be a very special one. I actually look forward. Let me back up a few hours. I look forward to the moment when it's traditional for the incoming president to usher out the outgoing president. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, on the White House lawn, uh, Donald Trump and Melania Trump will be ready to go off to New York or to Mar-a-Lago or somewhere. And, yeah. You know, right Moscow. before he, <laughs> sure, wherever you want. Right before he leaves, 
uh, to go off into the helicopter, I'm going to tell him, adios. <laughs> <laughs> so when I get into the Oval Office, okay, then, uh, uh, no, my first executive order will be to recommit the United States to the Paris Climate Accord so that we can lead on climate change again. And also, and I think this reflects the experience that I do have, having served as a cabinet member, as you know, this administration has undertaken a number of different rule changes that have undermined civil rights, right. women's rights, the environment, health care, education, any number of things. My first order of business will be to have a catalog of that, an index of that, and to immediately, in, on the first day and the, few f the, the days following that, instruct what will at that point be temporary people in charge of the departments to begin undoing those things that have been done and to uh, go in the right direction on civil rights and education and health care. You know, we got to go back in the direction of expanding opportunity instead of taking away from it. Yeah, agreed. Um, ask you a couple of national security questions. So <clears throat> there's been this very frightening uh, increase in globally in terrorist attacks by white nationalists. Uh, most recently, there was a lunatic who shot up two mosques in New Zealand. Um, the New York Times this week published an interesting analysis showing that many of these attacks were actually connected uh, either by direct communication between individuals involved or one was inspired by another. I'm curious what you think about what the U.S. government and also tech companies should do to stop online radicalization and the horrific violence that can come from it. Well, yeah, we have seen that, that there's this underworld um, out there in the internet and social media <clears throat> where people are getting radicalized, yeah. right? That's often a word, unfortunately, that has only been used um, when we talk about uh, folks in the Middle East yeah. or Muslims, Muslims, you know, has been people, you know, groups, whole groups have been slandered. But it, it is accurate to say that several of these young men uh, who have gone in and shot up, whether it's a church or a nightclub or uh, other circumstances here and also in other parts of the world, have been radicalized. And so I do think that whether it's Facebook or Twitter or others, that they have to bear some responsibility for cracking down on that, being more vigilant. And they've said that, right? And in some instances, they've taken steps, but I don't think that they've done enough. Uh, I think it was uh, the FBI director uh, may have testified recently that that this white nationalism is a real threat. Right, yeah. Um, and we see that, right? I also, though, I do think that we have to be careful because the president and others have would have people almost believe that every time somebody who happens to be Muslim commits a terrorist act, that we should view all people in that way. And, um, you know, we don't do that. Just like if somebody is white and they go and uh, if you have a white man that goes and shoots up a church or somewhere else— we don't make those kinds of conclusions. We have to come at these challenges where they are, right? Um, and do so in a way that separates um, the actions of one individual from an indictment of entire groups. Do you think Trump has, I don't know, inspired these groups or, or, or made common cause with some of the, the fringier nationalist groups out there? Yeah, I think it's fair to say they've gotten inspiration from him. Yeah. No yeah. doubt. And that... Uh, from what I can tell, um, there have been moments where he seems to either encourage or knowingly does not discourage 
these beliefs. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of after Charlottesville, yeah. you know, the very fine people. Yep. And yeah, he'll make a comment that, that this is wrong, it's the wrong thing, but it's never as fervent as he does when, you know, it's somebody of a different faith. Yeah, uh, of color. Who, yeah, somebody of color or different religion, especially um, you know, uh, incidents in France or Europe or other places where you happen to have had uh, someone who was Muslim commit one of these attacks, and he's all over that, yeah, yeah. right, in the strongest terms, but will not do that when it's one of these white nationalists. Agreed. Um, it's been about six months, uh, I believe, since the Saudis brutally executed and dismembered a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in their their consulate in uh, Istanbul. This week, Congress voted to end U.S. involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen that has put literally 20 million innocent people at risk of starvation. Uh, This week, we also learned that the Saudis are about to complete construction on their first nuclear reactor, but they have yet to agree to any international rules that would ensure that that technology is used for civilian purposes and not for weapons. Given the trajectory of the relationship and what we know of Mohammed bin Salman, do you think the Saudis are still our ally? That is a very good question. And, um, you know, frankly, I think that the Obama administration began to take a new look at that relationship. Uh, it's also troubling um, what we continue to find out about the relationship between the president's family yeah. uh, and the Saudi royal family. And so, uh, you know, I acknowledge here that I'm not privy to classified information. Sure, I don't know what other information there is or how helpful they may have been. Um, but right now, I would say that it certainly raises the question and it's alarming. Uh, that Saudi Arabia would be progressing toward nuclear capacity in this way. Uh, and there seems to be little accountability right now. Yeah. I mean, just imagining if Iran butchered a journalist who lived in the U.S. Uh, and then we found that they were building a nuclear reactor. I think we probably would have invaded five minutes ago. You know, and it, it's just, it's a remarkable double standard. Uh, and there's just this inertia in Washington, I think, that keeps us from rethinking these relationships. And I'm not totally sure why. Well, and that's why, you know, you wonder, is there something else there that we're not getting of value? Um, I mean, that's the question that I have as somebody right now that is not privy to that that kind of information. But what I can say is that that their march toward nuclear capacity or capability does trouble me, given other circumstances that we've seen. so as we speak, the, the Chinese government is undertaking what is likely the largest mass detention of a racial or religious group since the Holocaust. Um, experts estimate that at least one million Uyghurs who are a Muslim minority group are being held in, I guess you'd call them re-education camps. They're forced to renounce their religion, learn Chinese Communist Party propaganda. Um, some are reportedly being tortured. And I'm just struck by the fact that the world is largely silent on it. And that includes like allies of ours, like the UK. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. 
Head to crooked.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know that there's an easy answer here, but do you have a sense of what the U.S. should do to push them on this sort of massive human rights violation or it's an atrocity in plain sight? Well, I think that should be part of uh, any agreements that we forge with China uh, and our continued diplomatic relationship with them. I'm somebody that still believes that the United States has a role to play in leading the world on what we care about, you know, freedom, democracy, opportunity, and that even though this, this administration has scaled back in a big way its leadership on human rights abuses, um, we actually need to restore that. And so I would find every single way that we can to apply pressure to China on this, and not only China, but other countries around the world. Uh, we just saw what happened with the Sultan of Brunei, yeah, for instance. Right. And uh, you were in Los Angeles today. I mean, there's a boycott of one of his hotels over here right. that he has an interest in. Yeah, so George Clooney writes one op-ed, and we're boycotting a bunch of hotels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the fact is that... Uh, it's good stuff. You know, that, I like it. The, yeah. <laughs> but that ain't the way it's supposed to work no, either, either, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we need to restore is a strong voice of leadership on human rights abuses. Um, so President Trump has had this long back and forth with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He had this stomach that he thinks is historic in Singapore where they, you know, he came back and told us that there was no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea and that everything was solved. That's obviously not true. Um, the negotiations seem to have fallen apart. But as someone who, who worked in government for a while in the NSC and saw, particularly in the first term, the way inertia in, in D.C. conventional wisdom can hamstring a president, I was kind of impressed by Trump saying, fuck you guys, I'm going to meet with them. Who, who cares? What's the downside? I mean, I guess I'm just curious what you make of that diplomatic effort. And if you've thought about why sometimes in Washington it seems 
so much harder to make peace and, and have talks than it is to go to war. Yeah, I remember, you know, how much um, then-candidate Obama got pilloried, yeah. right, for saying that he would speak with people who were our quote-unquote enemies yep. right, without preconditions Precondition, and yeah. so forth. And, you know, what we see here with, with um, Trump may be a kind of a Nixon in China example, a smaller scale of it, where because he's seen as a tough guy on these issues, yeah. in some ways he can get away with more. But it shouldn't be like that. Right. Because the principle of being able to try and negotiate peace should apply no matter who you are, because it's in the nation's best interest. So, um, yes, I do think that that's an approach that we should take. Um, I also see that, frankly, as for me, um, you know, I, I'm not part and parcel of Washington. You know, I spent two and a half years there. Uh, I think sometimes folks that spend more time in Washington, right, the more you're influenced by the thinking of of elite Washington, uh, we shouldn't let that hamper how we go forward. Of course, what we've seen unfold in front of our eyes is that it seems like this president got played. Yeah. Um, and in fact, misled the American people about what was happening with these talks. And maybe most disappointingly, you know, just from a uh, executive perspective. He does not seem to have the discipline or the energy to put the time in to understand the issues well enough to be prepared. One thing that you knew about President Obama is that he studied those books, you know, and, and he respected the yeah. people that were advising him. This president thinks that he can wing everything. Yeah. And, you know, there's no doubt, of course, that he must have some talents. He wouldn't be where he is without it. But he just seems completely in over his head. And because of that, now they're actually going back uh, and probably their breakout capacity is getting, you know, smaller and smaller, mm -hmm. shorter and shorter. Right. Um, so we're we're misserved by a president that is too busy insulting people on Twitter or playing golf or going to Mar-a-Lago instead of putting the time in to actually, uh, you know, get us the kind of deal that we need. Yeah. Low energy Don. They probably made a few more nukes on his watch. Um Final question for you. So whenever someone famous comes into our office and gets asked about Beyonce, it gets picked up literally everywhere. So <laughs> Beyonce's Didn't she like Texas. strike up a deal with Adidas yesterday? I saw that. Tell me about right? it. Yeah. Well, I don't know much about it. Okay. I just saw the headlines, right? But she's a Texan, be a big right? Deal. She is. Houston. Is she yeah. going to endorse? I don't know. Well, if she does, I hope she endorses me. Okay. There we go. Uh, Beyonce might endorse Secretary <laughs> Castro. That's your headline out of this. Secretary, Texan thank you Texan. so much for coming in. It's a pleasure talking to you, and, and good luck. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you.